0: Hello, everyone. This is Black Facts with Marvin Fan, where I bring you the truth in Black culture, Black wisdom, and Black justice. Much of American popular music, from rock and roll to jazz, swing and gospel, is rooted in Black music. Most other African art forms were destroyed by slavery or diluted to such an extent that the original distinctive characteristics were lost. But the musical aspect of black culture survived slavery and has prospered. Though many black individuals have become successful as artists, they have failed to fully access or control the money generated by the music industry. They have not had a strong presence in the production, distribution, marketing or sale of music or the related legal or business work. Black music is the basis for one of the world's wealthiest industries. It has a unique role in popular world culture. The wealth and power of the music industry offer the most compelling reasons for blacks to recapture control of this cultural resource. White society's interest in black culture and musical art forms are deeply rooted in history. Whites were fascinated by African customs, especially native dance and song. The black Africans' physical movements were rhythmic, uninhibited, and sensuous. Whites found their dancing, singing, chanting, cries, and other sound effects compelling, erotic, and emotionally stimulating. Whites liked to observe blacks performing, not only because black art forms conveyed a sense of contentness, but because whites were entranced by the black style. They liked what they saw, They liked that they felt, and they found ways to manipulate it, control it, initiate it, and most of all, make money from it. The conversation of African music to New World or Black American music began abroad the slave ships as the music was transformed in response to the horrible conditions of enslavement. The slaves expressed their physical and psychological pain through song, music, and dance. Captains of the slave ships gave slaves opportunities to sing, dance, and express their sorrows. These releases of emotion were like a drug that raised the slave spirits and burned off surplus energy quelling pent-up hostilities that represented a constant danger to their white captors. During the long voyages from Africa to the New World, both the slaves and the crews looked forward to these release rituals, which became known as the dancing slaves. For added enjoyment, some slave ships provided musical instruments such as tambourines, harps, fiddles, and banjos for the slaves. Ships without musical instruments often permitted slaves to make music by using pots and pans. The most commonly used occupying sounds were vocal harmony, hand clapping, or foot stomping. The long voyages and brutal conditions generated deep new emotions in the slaves who modified their traditional African songs, music, and dances to convey how they felt about their forced voyage from Africa. The white slave traders were fascinated by the emerging new sounds and dances. In the New World slave markets, the slaves retained and continued to modify their music and dance heritage. European settlers began to openly expressed their interest in slave music. Some plantation owners gave slaves musical instruments. The gifts were investments that provided entertainment as well as profits. Advertisements for slaves sometimes touted musical and dancing talents because such skills increased a slave's value. By the Revolutionary War, The Virginia Act of 1776 called blacks into military service to be employed as drummers and fifers in rural plantation areas. Slave musical performances were the primary entertainment and dancing was the favorite form of recreation. And throughout the South, slaves played fiddles, banjos and drums at their master's special plantation balls. Whites developed an appetite for the distinctive way that blacks played the jig and other Negro tunes. During holiday seasons and weekends, whites co- customarily gathered their slaves into the yards to sing, dance, and make music to entertain the masters, family members, and guests. The singing and dancing of slaves added to the security and comfort of the slaveholders. They disliked and did not trust silent Blacks. They wanted slaves to sing while they worked and to at least give the impression that they were happy. Black work songs developed into some of America's first folk music and became Blacks' statement to the world. These work songs describe hard, unhappy, describe the hard and unhappy lives of slaves with the primitive tools, little food and non-monetary compensation. They sweated their lives away in the cotton fields, mines or on the railroad lines, producing wealth for the white class, the burdens and pains of slavery and Jim Crowism, was eased by the music and the occasional dance, excuse me, and the occasional, occasional, excuse me, chance to dance. It gave blacks the strength to endure. We'll be back after this message. Okay, and we're back with White Wealth Through Black Music. The Emancipation Proclamation, brought short-lived joy and celebration into the lives of the slaves who sang and danced for days ecstatic about their new legal freedom. But the uh, failure of Reconstruction made life harder for the newly freed slaves. Confused and abandoned by the North, the ex-slaves continued to make emotional statements in the only ways open to them. New musical forms... They sought emotional comfort and release in the churches. The ex-slaves' inability to read the hymns of books or musical notes gave them the freedom to play and sing what they felt in their souls. Outside of the churches, Blacks blended the spirituals with old slave work songs and called it the blues. Whether it was the church, or the street corner, blacks accentuated their music with emotion. The black blues singer was a storyteller who powerfully conveyed the deep sorrows and pains of a black nation in prison within a white nation. Often white society responded to the new black music in a manner that reflected their emotional dilemma. They were attracted to it and simultaneously repulsed. The more religiously conservative whites affixed derogatory labels to black music. They called the blues race music. By the 19th century, New New Orleans had become the center of a new form of black music called jazz, which was a shortened label for what whites called jackass music. In their happier moods, blacks created Dixieland and ragtime music. Ragtime was labeled "coon" music by whites. Gospel music is a product of the 20th century and similar to black secular music, especially blues and jazz. The gutsy cries and grunts and rhythm and blues music took on a label of soul music. Blacks passed their music down from generation to generation. It expressed their hopes, determinations, and assurance that there would be a better life. Popular country and Western music has heavy Black roots also. Coming from the musical background established by Black slave entertainers and vagabonds, segregation in rural areas of the country maintained an archaic form of European speech patterns and a culture that resulted in bluegrass and Western music, which were more closely identified with r- rural whites. However, popular and progressive country music has been incrementally updated with Black sounds through the years. Now, from the beginning, Black music and dance continued to thrive. In an atmosphere of distraction, oppression, distortion and theft, white minstrels in the 1800s gave rise to some of the first initiative exploitation of black music and dance. With black face makeup, whites mimicked blacks and provided whites with black entertainment without blacks. These white performers provided whites with a safe window to the cultural and emotional world of black people and made money. They capitalized on white fascination and attraction to black art forms. The exploitation of black art forms has changed very little from the earliest instance of Jim Crowism. On a Cincinnati street in 1830, Dan Rice, a famous white black faced menstrual performer saw a ragged little black boy singing Jump Jim Crow Jump and copied the dance in his performances to the great pleasure of whites. Rice and other vaudeville blackface minstrels grew popular and wealthy, imitating black songs, dances, and comedy acts that contributed to creating negative stereotypes of blacks. By the Civil War, Minstrel shows have become the most popular forms of entertainment in the North, in part because they ridiculed blacks and justified northerners' indifference to uh, black enslavement. Now, a few blacks who had learned to mock themselves broke the minstrel tradition by the 1890s, and some black entertainers even whitened their faces, turning the paradox of skin color full circle. By the turn of the century, white vaudeville started to tone down its harsh marking of blacks. This slight change was occurring primarily because talented black pioneers like Bob Cole wrote music and sketches for white vaudeville shows. Now, this allowed white entertainers to use black songs, dances, jokes and slang expressions without being too offensive but Black-facing would not die. White minstrels remained popular in certain sections of the country well into the third decade of this century. Paradoxically, in the uh, early 20th century, Blacks could not perform their own music and dance before white audiences due to segregation laws. Many Black entertainers traveled to Europe and entertained the more liberal and enthusiastic audiences there white performers capitalized on the fact that blacks did not have vertical commercial control of their music when black entertainers left the country they left a void that was filled by a new form of white minstrelization white performers began to try to sound black by the roaring 20s Blacks had lost ragtime, Dixieland, and jazz to big band white musicians, Mm. such as T. Garden, Benny Goodman, and the Dorsey Brothers, who uh, expriorated the art form under the label of swing. Music and dance went together. Black dancers, such as the Charleston, Tap, Jitterbug, and Cakewalk were copied in white dance halls. By the 1930s and 1940s, a blackface singer named Al Jolson achieved national recognition by mimicking blacks, kneeling on one knee and singing Mammy and "Swanee River. Jolson's performances depicted the bewildered black yearning for the plantations of the past. The integration movement that began in the mid-1950s opened the door for whites to totally appropriate black music. Now, until that time, black music was primarily available only in black clubs and underground. Blacks did not own radio stations, and only one or two white stations would play real black music. (laughs) It was not sold in white record stores, and only black mom-and-pop shops sold it. White singers scoured black sources for new music and again, minstrelized it for white audiences. This time without using blackface makeup, they made fortunes in white markets by imitating popular songs of rhythm and blues artists. Elvis Presley became known as the king of rock and roll. And much of the music sung by Elvis and Bill Haley in the Comets was music that was written previously sung by Black rhythm and bu- blues artists. The title Rock and Roll came from an old blues song of Big Joe Turner called Shake, Rattle, and Roll, which Haley and the Comics popularized among white audiences. Hardly any Black musical uh, artists received respect, credit, or copyright compensation for their music from jazz, blues, Dixieland, gospel, ragtime, swing, bebop, boogie-woogie, or rhythm and blues. Stripped of their music and revenue in the United States, Black musicians increased their efforts to establish new markets in Europe in the late 1950s, just as their Black predecessors had done in the 1920s. And by the early 1960s, Europeans had been exposed to Black music and dance and could imitate Blacks. The mid-1960s witnessed an influx of Black-influenced European musicians and songs such as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Bee Gees, and Elton John. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, actually honors many of the whites as musicians and performers as artists who discovered Black music, rather than as imitators who renamed it. Michael Bolton is the current popular white singer of black music. In responding to a letter from a reader uh, from Parade Magazine, January 2nd, 1994, expressed its belief in the mainstream popularity of Bolton saying he is a white whaler who merely redoes old black ballads. When a nationally known black television station informed Bolton that blacks felt he was mimicking black singers and exploiting black music, he assured the newscaster that he loved black music and was playing it excuse me, paying it the highest respect by singing it. Naturally, some black artists such as Fats Domino, Ruth Brown, and Little Richard <clears throat> were regular targets of white musical imitators did not see such actions as respect and sued white artists who became rich and famous by copying their music. A few have been successful in their lawsuits. Blacks' lack of capital, production, technology, marketing networks, and access to copyright and artistic protection not only left them exposed to the exploitation of imitators, but also left them absolutely no control of their cultural product. When major white record, record companies refused to, um, refused to contract with uh, black performers, a few smaller white companies filled the void and developed R&B record labels and promoted black music to black markets. The return on their investment was high, not only because they created monopolies on black talent, but because they paid black performers a pittance for their valuable product. Blacks have uh, used music to earn a living in America for many years. Performing was the single most profitable occupation for blacks prior to the Civil War. As far back as 1850, census data indicated that nearly 24% of all free black classify themselves as professional musicians. However, until Barry Gordy demonstrated how to control and commercialize black culture by forming Motown Records in the late 1950s, few blacks had found a way to form a lifeline between music and the wealth-building opportunities it provided. Gordy particularly cornered the market on contracting Black singing talent. His artists dominated the record industry for decades and repopularized Black music and, and controlled this Black art form. Motown provided vertical opportunities for Black singers, promoters, writers, and musicians it was an important symbol of Blacks controlling the profiting from Black culture and producing Black wealth. But unfortunately, in 1993, it was reported that this unique repository of Black history and culture would be purchased by Polygram Music, a Dutch corporation. Though Motown passed from Black hands to white hands, it still stands as the prime model for using Black culture to build a sense of racial togetherness and pride and economic success. The record industry sells $7.5 billion annually in compact disc tapes, record albums, and other products and services centered around music, according to Black Enterprise Magazine. Now, that figure nearly matches the total gross annual revenue for all Black businesses combined for the same time period. Black performers could leverage their status within the industry to create new business opportunities for Black investors and inspiring Black entrepreneurs. They could use their wealth and popularity as leverage to foster vertical business opportunities from talent agencies and music distributors, to nightclubs and record stores. The more economic involvement in the industry, the more personal power and wealth Black entertainers could hold for themselves and their people. Enough said. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the next episode and tell others about it. So until then, peace and God bless. In the name of Jesus, and I'll say it.